0: You are listening to America's Home for stadium news and information. Stadium's USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action. Here's Bill Hazen. It's a race to the finish in the American League East where the Baltimore Orioles are chasing the Boston Red Sox. But right now, there aren't that many fans in beautiful Camden Yard's what's going on. We'll get the answer from Baltimore sports broadcaster and reporter Glenn Clark. For those who want to know the score, nothing beats today's massive scoreboard displays, but that's a very distant cousin from the original scoreboards, which entertained and informed generations of fans. We'll learn about those scoreboards with the help of writer Scott Allen. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran explains why things are a little upside down with the highly ranked Wisconsin Badgers. But first, here's the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt.
1: Jeff? Well, a committee in Las Vegas have given approval to a stadium measure that could bring the Oakland Raiders to the desert. The proposal now heads to Nevada Governor Brian Sandoval, who could call a special session of the legislature to finalize the deal. Developers are hoping for a decision soon to make a proposal to the NFL to move the Raiders to Vegas. Well, stadium security is a lot like an offensive lineman. If you're getting mentioned, it's usually not good news. Such is the case with security at Levi Stadium in Santa Clara after a fan bolted onto the field during the 49ers opener against the Rams. Hey,
2: somebody has run out on the field. Some goofball in a hat and a red shirt. Now he takes
3: off the shirt. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's at the 30. He's bare chested.
2: Oh, they got him. Here are coming the blue from goats. the left. Oh, and they tackle him at the 40-yard line.
1: Westwood 1's Kevin Harlan with the call. 16-year-old William Navarette says he snuck into a section near field level and responding to a dare from friends bolted onto the field. 49ers are reassessing their on-field security measures. Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the soon-to-be new home of the Atlanta Falcons, will host a big college football game next season. It was just announced Alabama and Florida State will square off in the September 2nd game in 2017. This marks the fifth consecutive year Alabama has opened their season at a neutral venue site. Well, rest in peace, Los Angeles Sports Arena, the former home of the Lakers, Clippers, USC and UCLA basketball is nothing more than a pile of rubble. Crews are making progress on demolition at the site next to the LA Memorial Coliseum. A new soccer stadium will occupy the arena site. And who says Dodgers outfielder Yasiel Puig doesn't have a heart? Before leaving New York this week, Puig met with a fan to offer an apology. After he caught the final out of the Dodgers' win over the Yankees, he tossed the ball into the stands. 25-year-old Alyssa Gerharder stood tall, arms extended, ready to catch Puig's toss, but she missed the ball, ended up hitting her smack dab on the mouth, knocking out her front teeth. She received medical attention at Yankee Stadium before heading to the hospital. Puig eventually met Gerharder and took some pictures. Gerharder says the act only solidifies her allegiance to the first place Dodgers. Bill, that is the very latest.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Jeff. If you check the standings of Major League Baseball, you are going to find that the closest race in the majors right now is in Baltimore with the Orioles chasing the Boston Red Sox. We're going to head to Baltimore, talk about it, talk about fan support. And to join us is Glenn Clark, who has his own radio program on his own side. We'll tell you about that as we go along. Glenn Clark Radio. Dot com. Glenn, I think things are pretty exciting right now. The Orioles giving it a good run. How is Camden Yards looking and what type of baseball support are they getting?
3: Bill, uh, first of all, really appreciate you having me on. The baseball's good. The Orioles are competitive. They're a team worth watching. There is so much good happening in Baltimore, yet the crowds have been disappointing. It's no, There's no easy answer for it. There's been a lot that's happened. I think a lot of people across the country are familiar with um, Some of the unrest that we experienced downtown in Baltimore a year ago, there mm-hmm. have been issues with ticket prices and not knowing what the ticket prices are. The ticket's not being put on sale until late. There's a lot of things happening. But needless to say, it has been disappointing for a team that's been very good now for the last five years um, that midweek series have averaged somewhere around 15 to 20,000 fans for the last few weeks in the middle of a pennant
0: race. Really, and in such great ballpark, too.
3: And they've done such a great job, too, of, of modernizing it and upgrading it over. It's, it's now over 20-year history that you know they've added in uh, bars and, and places where people can hang out and things along those lines. It could be any number of reasons that are built into this. There are places Cleveland has worse problems. Cleveland's going to win the, NL, or the AL Central. Their attendance has been worse this season. That being said, the Orioles have a lot of work to do, and I've talked to Dan Duquette about it. They are trying to figure out what they need to do moving forward to make sure they don't see these large swaths of empty seats Um, year in and year out.
0: And we're looking at a different situation today than we were with the Orioles 20 years ago. You have a team 40 miles to the south that sits, what, 26, 27 games over 500 right now. The Nationals themselves are having a very good year. Is that digging into some of those empty seats?
3: You know, there's no question about that. Now, look, the fans will be there in the postseason. It's not as if there isn't a market here, and it's not as if Baltimore individually cannot support a baseball team or anything along those lines. But there's no doubt, yes, they were. it was easier to draw massive crowds every night when you were the only game in town. And when uh, DC was primarily Orioles territory, that has had a significant impact. And as you referenced, the fact that the Nationals are very good, there's still a lot of Orioles fans in DC grow up rooting for a team, even when you have a new team come along you know, you still root for the team that you used to root for. And I think there's still a lot of Nationals fans in D.C. or Orioles fans in D.C. that'd be willing to come to games, but they've got a very good team right there in their backyard. So... All of these things
0: have played a factor for the Orioles. Glenn, Now you also do some writing at thepressboxonline.com, and you recently had a very interesting story regarding M&T Bank Stadium and uh, some of the issues uh, related to that. They changed the playing surface this year, and what I understand is that it's getting very good reviews uh, early from what we've heard. Um, How do you evaluate that stadium? And if you walk around it, it's big. It's, it's sophisticated. It's relatively new. And yet I noticed when you evaluated it, you had some ideas about how to make it better.
3: Yeah. So this, you know, the story that I wrote this week, uh, Bill, I appreciate you bringing it up. This is brought up in context of team president Dick Cass just sort of passed off without a full announcement, but passed off last week that there are going to be renovations coming to MT Bank Stadium, which at first kind of catches you off guard because you say, well, you're right. It's not that old. But then you think about it a little bit more and you say, boy, I guess it really is kind of approaching Uh, being 20 years old now uh, the the ravens have been back they played the first couple seasons at memorial stadium before they built the new stadium in downtown baltimore so yeah i could see where you want to modernize it a little bit but i think the bigger issue is sort of what every nfl team is facing right now which is how to make the stadium experience compete with the home experience and you're seeing in atlanta with new stadium and some of the renovations they've done in miami They're trying to create atmospheres for people who want to come and hang out for young people that that say, hey, look, hanging out at home or hanging out at a bar is a really good experience for me and not nearly as pricey. If you're going to charge me this amount of money to just sit in a seat, Mm -hmm. not be able to see my fantasy football team, things along those lines, is it really worth it to me? And that's something that every NFL team has to deal with right now. So a lot of the suggestions that I made in my column were sort of in context of you need to create these sort of hangout areas, whether it's a bar, whether it's what they did in Jacksonville with the pool. I don't think they're going to be doing that in Baltimore because the thing's going to freeze over come December. But you know what I'm, I'm talking about, these areas where young people can hang out at a game because that's what they're looking for. That's very clear that that's what they're into. It's not necessarily my thing. I'm fine. I Give me good cell phone service so I can check my fantasy team <laughs> if I'm sitting in the stands for whatever reason that week. I think it's something that, that not just in Baltimore, but they're going to have to deal with everywhere. And those are the suggestions that I made. I'm fascinated. I've been trying to get some information from the team. They're being very tight-lipped about what it is they're going to be doing with the stadium. But um, you know, about 20 years into their history, they've decided they need to continue modernizing it. You mentioned the grass field that looks beautiful. Um, and has gotten very good reviews. You, they've redone their sound systems. They've redone their video boards. They totally upgraded the Wi-Fi network in the stadium. They've done a lot of really good things so far. I just think there's more that they can do. And, and again, it's it's important to say it's not unique to them. It's it's all of these stadiums that were built around the same time. Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati alone in in just the AFC North are all built around the same time, and they're all going through the same issue. How do we modernize our stadium? For the crowd that's coming in to give them what they want when we know the experience at home watching on a, you know, 80 inch TV is a pretty good one.
0: Well, Glenn, we want to wish you well and invite everybody to catch your act at www.glenclarkradio.com. The show airs when, Glenn?
3: monday through friday 10 a.m the noon eastern and and bill i really appreciate that it's been
0: a, a great joy to chat with you today glenn clark our guest stay tuned more coming your way as we return on sb nation radio
1: How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need
0: we have a topic for you now that is a lot of fun scoreboards and brother i have looked at them from the time i was a child we've seen them evolve it's a great story and it's told by washington post sports writer scott allen he did a great story about this actually it's a while back that he did it but it still continues to pop up on a regular basis at the website mental floss and so uh, we wanted to do a little flossing i thought we'd catch up with scott on this scott welcome aboard what a great story i'll bet you you had a lot of fun with this going back researching the history of scoreboards and it is a fascinating history why do we start with that
4: yeah th- thanks a lot for having me bill it, you know it's i wrote it a few years ago and went back to kind of jog my memory about it but it's certainly one of the more fun pieces that i wrote i mean i've been looking at scoreboards like your listeners for my entire life as well love going to the ballpark Took a, a cross country road trip after graduating college to see as many stadiums as possible. Always kind of interested in kind of stadium architecture, but by association, the scoreboards that make different places unique. And, you know, in researching it, I was kind of struck at just how far back the scoreboard history goes. I mean, certainly, as long as you're Playing games, you need somebody keeping score, but just even having something for the fans to see, especially the out of town games. I mean, in the early 1900s, the idea that people would show up in theaters To watch guys operate a manual and then a little bit later an electric scoreboard in a theater setting was really surprising to me.
0: Yeah, this is fascinating. This hits at one of the points that I found interesting as far as the early evolution of Mm -hmm. these uh, devices and how much they were used in non-stadium settings. That was very interesting. You had a picture of the Washington Post, which had its own setup so that people could... Go ahead and follow a game without having to go to it. I I liken it a lot to the elections where people would go downtown many years ago to watch it as they printed it out on signs. You know, they'd go to a newspaper or whatever. I guess the scoreboard played that same type of role in sports. It did not
4: yeah it did and I can assure you that that scoreboard is no longer outside the post building unfortunately <laughs> um, but but at least for those those were specifically for very big games I think for the World Series in baseball they would do that so special occasions not the not all one hundred sixty two regular season games but uh, there was an article in the New York Times, in, I think from 1901, some of the bigger college football games between the Ivy League schools, the Knickerbocker Athletic Club put out an advertisement to, hey, come on down and and we'll have somebody here getting scores and updates uh, via Telegraph and and updating just quarter by quarter. Such a different way to watch. Kind of like the early... Um, If you're following a game on your phone and not seeing the video, just seeing, say, a baseball game on GameCast and seeing the the red dot come up for the ball and then the green dot for the strike, an Mm -hmm. early version of that.
0: If you go back and you look at the evolution of media, Radio was resisted initially by many major league baseball teams because they thought it would affect attendance. Television, mm-hmm. very much the same way and on and on and on. It never occurred to me that the scoreboard itself, if you go way back, the scoreboard played that kind of role. Did it not? Was it not a potential force for people to actually technically stay away from the ballpark?
4: Yeah, that was really that was really interesting as well. When the when the first electric scoreboard was introduced in uh, 1908, um, Boston's two baseball teams tested it out and and kind of liked the idea. But you had other owners across the league who were hesitant to adopt the scoreboard for the very reason that you mentioned. They were worried that um, if you broadcast all this information to people at the park, there was no longer any in, incentive for them to buy scorecards and uh, and keep score themselves. So, I mean, we've, we're certainly far past that point now, and I, I think certainly fewer people buy scorecards today um, than they did back then. It's not necessarily, it's not necessary, but you do have people who kind of do enjoy keeping score the old-fashioned way in their scorebook.
0: Uh, You know, there's been a great history of scoreboards here in Chicago. I went to games at both Wrigley Field and Comiskey Park. Take us through a little bit about those scoreboards. And, of course, the Wrigley Field scoreboard is still in use today.
4: Yeah, I actually got a chance to see Wrigley Field um, for the first time last summer, but I saw it just with that giant, iconic green scoreboard in center field. And you know, in the research, I found it was it was actually constructed by Bill Veck, who we normally associate with the White Sox but that went up in uh, in 1937, built in 1937. And yeah, certainly the the Comiskey Park original scoreboard with the exploding fireworks and kind of the, the spinning candy, uh, a funny anecdote about that, the White Sox manager saw that when it was first introduced, Jimmy Dykes. And he said, you know, what is baseball coming to? I got a quote here. He said, all I know was that if i was a pitcher whose home run ball had started that 4th of july celebration i'd fire my next pitch at the head of the next hitter <laughs> so he was he was not too keen on the, the scoreboardization of, of baseball and the 4th of July celebration, as he put it.
0: Well, there was quite a reaction to that, too. I think people around the Chicago area remember, if they're old enough, the first time the New York Yankees came to town after the so-called exploding scoreboard, which is what you're referring to, after that was built and it was put in place and one of the Yankees hit a home run and they had all been given, the Yankee players had all been given sparklers and they <laughs> lit them up and they stepped up on the dugout steps. And they raised their sparklers. It was uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Uh, of course, there's a great evolution in terms of how these scoreboards work. Uh, we've seen an electronic evolution at one level, and then we've seen that go on to a digital revolution, and that's of course a totally. Different level and it brings in video and a number of things. The Dodgers, really on the video side, I think the Dodgers were among the first with that huge television setup that they had at Dodger Stadium.
4: Yeah, I think that's right. The Diamond Vision, as they called it, um, in in 1980 um, introduced that at the 1980 All Star Game, actually, and that was a that was a big deal when it happened, and it and it represented a departure from what was considered a, a big deal in 1959 when Yankee Stadium became the first stadium to have the capability on the scoreboard to display kind of rotating messages uh, with a bunch of thousands of bulbs um, creating these different messages. So, Mm -hmm. And then since then, you come all the way up to 2009 with what's now called AT&T Stadium in in Dallas, obviously moving to football, but just enormous HD screen makes the diamond vision at the original Dodger Stadium seem antiquated.
0: What direction is this all headed? As you researched this and looked at it, you saw the evolution. You've been able to look from the beginning uh, forward. Did you get any sense of future evolution of the scoreboard?
4: I mean, I think obviously we'll see as technology continues to develop that teams, when it becomes you know cost effective for them to do so, kind of getting up with the times, keeping up with the times. I think everyone pretty much has moved to to HD scoreboards and and that technology will continue to get better. But but I think what you'll see more and more of is teams figuring out ways that they can present information that is is most valuable to the fans to improve the fan experience. So I think that and maybe including more of the Fancy stats, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. um, that are becoming more accepted in the game to just improve the overall experience for the fans.
0: Scott, this is wonderful. What a great story this is. We thank you for sharing it with us. We wish you well. Continued success on this.
4: Good deal. Thanks a lot, Bill. It was a pleasure.
0: A pleasure. Scott Allen, our guest, he is a writer for the Washington Post and wrote a great story on stadium scoreboards. Mark Madoren is standing by. We'll dive into this week's Talking Shop Items. That is next on SB Nation
1: Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA teams merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Ladies and gentlemen, the show
0: must go on. And that's the type of fighting spirit we have around here. In steps Mark Medoran. He knows the drill. Mark is the president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. And we have a reminder for you. Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information. Check it out at stadiumsusa.com. And also, this reminder, you can listen to podcasts of Stadiums USA Radio. On the Blog Talk Radio Network and subscribe to us on iTunes. And of course, listen each week right here on SB Nation Radio. Mark, the value of an NFL franchise is going up and way up. New numbers were released this week. Stadiums, of course, are a primary driver on this, and that's good news in Minnesota. Tell us how much richer the rich are getting.
2: Well, Bill, NFL owners continue to get richer and richer, (laughs) beyond belief. But building a new stadium does ring the cash register. The Minnesota Vikings will enjoy their new venue. Uh, It looks terrific, but owners will enjoy the financial benefits, Forbes valued the Vikings at $1.15 billion in 2014. That value has now jumped to $2.2 billion. Hmm. The Rams moved from St. Louis to L.A. resulted in an increase of value from $400 million to $2.9 billion. Wow. And this is two years before their stadium is finished. It's amazing the amount of money that has added to the value of these franchises by putting together a new stadium. Ask Jerry Jones. They put together AT&T, and now the Cowboys are worth well over $4 billion.
0: It is costly to go to NFL games. We all know that. But Money Magazine has some ideas, some strategies on the ways that fans can save some money going to those games this year some good ideas here mark why don't you break it out for us
2: well it certainly isn't getting any less expensive to see an nfl game the average cost around the league for two people well exceeds two hundred dollars but there are some ways to save if your budget won't stretch quite that far number one buying on the secondary market time is on your side tickets generally get cheaper as the game time approaches Uh, Tickets that are bought two to three days ahead of the game are about 30% cheaper than tickets that were bought two to three weeks ahead of the game. So you can keep that in mind when you're going to look for seats. The next thing is less popular teams. If you wanted to see your favorite NFL team, try and pick a game that's uh, generally against a less popular team. For example, Rams, Jaguars, they've had some rough years in a row. Mm -hmm. They're not drawing well. On the road, those will be less expensive tickets to get. Uh, road games. If you like your favorite team, check out their road schedule and see if there's a possibility that you can catch them on the road and save some money. Now, you do have some cost to travel, but still, sometimes the cost of the tickets are much less. And so it saves the uh, travel expense. You might also look at night games. Night games tend to be less expensive than day games. So that Monday night game that your team is playing might be a good way to get in the stadium and spend a little less money. And lastly, as the season extends into December, Look at tickets in cold-weather venues because they tend to drop dramatically, particularly if it's an open stadium. For example, look at Cleveland. Look at Chicago. Those tickets get pretty cheap in December when the wind chills get around uh, (laughs) –
0: 15 below. <laughs> Bare weather. You remember that? Oh, yeah. That means you can freeze your nose off by half. <laughs> what were they thinking? Well, that's a topic for another show. Mark, do you remember when they were building Levi Stadium in Santa Clara and they had those drone photographs? You'd see the drone flying right over the stadium, right over the top of it, and how beautiful that was. Well, if we wound back, we went ahead and took that drone and we flew over the top of it, Right now, we'd see something that was pretty strange up there on the roof. And uh, you've had a chance to uh, study this up close. What's it all about with the 49ers rooftop?
2: Remember a couple of years ago, we were talking about Levi Stadium when it opened and how they had problems with the playing surface, and they had to replace the surface a couple of times. Mm -hmm. They were having problems growing grass, but their growing season has been well extended. Uh, We learned this week that the 49ers are growing vegetables, On the stadium roof at Levi's Stadium. (laughs) The 4,000 square foot organic vegetable farm and herb garden is the very first uh, venture of this type on a rooftop in the NFL. Uh, The farm will produce about 40 different crops used in dishes around the stadium, uh, like uh, club space and suites, uh, and also during games and other events. Some of the food will also be given to nonprofits and food shelters. The types of crops that are being produced are tomatoes, squash, and eggplant. They're also producing some herb, too. And since it's San Francisco, I didn't want to go into what that herb might be. (laughs) Uh, But they tell us there's about 150 pounds per week produced. And since it's California, of course, nothing will surprise us.
0: Oh, absolutely. Wow. That's really something. Mark, your alma mater, the University of Wisconsin, is off to a good start. I was looking around here for a copy of On Wisconsin here. I couldn't find one. I could <laughs> sing it for you, but I think
2: we'd lose we'd lose some listeners at that point.
0: Yes, whatever we have left, we would lose it. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> the Badgers are currently ranked in the top ten, and of course they play at home at Camp Randall Stadium, but there's something very strange about the end zone there, although I must admit I didn't see it. If you look very closely something is not right what's wrong in that end zone mark well the field crew at camp randall made a minor mistake (laughs) in setting up the lettering in in
2: the south end zone the final n in wisconsin is upside down the letters are supposed to match the previous n has a little um highlight on it Mm -hmm. with that type of text that should be in the upper left hand corner And the ends don't tend to match. It's in the lower right-hand corner on the other end. So something went awry. Um, (laughs) The assistant AD, Justin Doherty, said that the letters were installed actually by FieldTurf, the company that produced the surface at Camp Randall and they're working with the filter people to try and get that fixed as soon as possible but if they continue to win and stay in the top 10 i say the letters look just fine to me
0: yeah that's what i'm thinking i'm thinking paul christ uh, goes ahead and hey wait wait a minute uh, maybe we're on a win streak right now i don't know if we want to flip those we're, letters we're not changing tonight. our socks we're not changing the letters <laughs> that's exactly right all right mark time to take a look back at significant stadium and ballpark events what do you have for us this week.
2: Oh, I got some good ones. This week in 1963, the final game of New York's Polo Grounds, a little more than 1,700, saw the Phillies beat the Mets. Uh, how was the popcorn, Bill? Pretty good?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed it was. It was Very free. Good.
2: It was free. In 1978, the Dodgers became the first MLB franchise to draw three million fans, mm. and that is one heck of a lot of fans.
0: Yeah, it is.
2: This week, 1988, the first ever regular season game for the Phoenix Cardinals, who kick off their new chapter in primetime against the Dallas Cowboys on Monday Night Football. The
0: Cardinals' new home is Sun Devil Stadium on the campus of Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona, just outside Phoenix. 70,000 plus are here tonight for this Arizona first.
2: Of course, that was the familiar voice of former ABC Monday Night Football play-by-play man Frank Gifford. And this week in 1991, a 55-ton concrete beam falls at Montreal's Olympic Stadium. No one was injured, but the incident forces the Expos to play their final 13 home games in their opponents' ballparks. Hmm. And that's just a few dates in stadium history. And Bill, from our Stadiums USA quiz this week, located at stadiumsusa.com, here's a quiz question for you. All right. Which MLB ballpark boasts the furthest distance from home plate to straightaway center field? And I'll give you the four options. Wrigley Field, Chicago. Nope. (laughs) Minute Maid Park in Houston, AT&T Park in San Francisco, or Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati?
0: All right. I'm taking a guess that it's B, Minute Maid Park in Houston, because they had that Tal Smith... Uh, hill there in center field and I'm guessing that extended it back let's see if I'm right it
2: certainly did, you are correct uh, distance is uh, 436 feet which is a pretty good blast for a center field shot
0: you'd have to hit it like Modoran to get that one out you'd have to muscle up on it, that's for sure All right, Mark, well as always, good to visit we'll see you next week thank you Bill That's our program for this week. Join us again next week for Stadiums USA on Blog Talk Radio.